I am Planta on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A fascinating book came out this past summer, East Side Story, Growing Up at the P&E. It's a fun memoir about the comedian and educator Nick Marino's experience working at and now as a father attending the Pacific National Exhibition. He joins me to talk about his own experiences at the fair, as well as why it matters to a lot of Vancouverites, not to mention British Columbians. I'll ask him about the unique people he's encountered over the years there, as well as uh, the sort of kids like Nick that uh, work the rides and concessions, not to mention the folks who work the fair circuit, either selling products or traveling with exhibits, animals, and various amusements that have beguiled P&E attendees for over a century. I'll ask Nick about the good times, as well as the dark history of the fairgrounds, especially the period during the uh, Second World War, when Japanese Canadians were interned. Nick's uh, also interviewed a lot of people who share their experiences at the Peony. Nick Marino is a writer, comedian, and elementary school teacher. He has performed at Just for Laughs Northwest and curated a series of comedy and music shows called Bite of the Underground. This new book is published by Robin's Egg, which is an imprint of uh, Arsenal Pulp Press. We taped this interview just over a month ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Nick Marino. Mr. Marino, good morning. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Um, you teach at an elementary school here in Vancouver. Do they uh, do they call you Mr. Marino? Yeah, they call me Mr. Marino. Yeah, there are some teachers, uh, a couple that go by, you know, their first name, uh-huh. but it's like, you know, Miss Carrie. Um, I've, I've considered going by Nick, but I just haven't done it yet. Yeah, I went to Charles Dickens. Um, oh. the elementary and the annex, and um, it was always first names. And, um, yeah. I, you know, I'm comfortable with the first names, but I always found it odd when I would, um, you know, hear Mr. and Ms. Because um, I, I, when you go to high school, it obviously becomes Mr. and Ms. Um, I, I don't know, I just I found it, uh, I still get, I can't get over it <laughs> 30 <laughs> years later, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, if kids ever ask me my name, I tell them my name. I tell them how old I am. I don't try to hide anything from them. I find it weird that uh, some teachers don't want kids to know their their first name or they feel like they found out some privileged information. Yeah. Well, you tell a lot about yourself in this book, East Side Story. It's it's, um, not just a history of the P&E and and the surrounding area, but there's a lot about your family in here. Um, It it makes it such a a personal story as well and, and a compelling one. There's so many memorable characters from from your family uh, in the book. Um, was it was it fun to look back at the, at some of the people in in your family, especially? Yeah, that, that part was great, and that was the easiest part to write in the way that uh, I knew that stuff inside out. Um, so I didn't have to do research on it. I just had to find the right way to tell it. Some of it was difficult to tell. The, the stuff about my mom was definitely. Mm hard to tell but I, I i knew that it was part of the story of the you know my character in this book so i had to include it but yeah looking back on some of the things my cousins did i mean they were you know two six and eight years older than me and i looked up to them so much that uh it was kind of it was a real joy revisiting some of those stories and talking to them about it that's a great thing about nostalgia isn't it that, that um it, it makes us feel um, nice to look back, and I'm sure that's how you felt uh, throughout the book. A lot of it uh, wasn't good either. You know, the, you, you talk about the theft and the scams and the, and the casual violence even. Um, yeah. 
what is it like to look back um, as an adult today? Um, because you talk about how you were as a student. We, we started the conversation about you being a teacher today. Um, I wonder what kids would think about um, Mr. Marino as a kid, say. Well, I mean, I, I am going to find that out because my first day when I walked into class this, uh, this uh, Tuesday, there was a, a grade five that was standing there with my book wanting me to sign it. <laughs> <laughs> I just signed, uh, you're too young for this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think like, I could have told my story of working the P&E and, and, and sort of skipped all the, the parts that were in the end, I think, kind of the interesting parts. I think we'd like to, to hear about people struggling with choices or making bad decisions. And so I was okay with it. I, I certainly don't present myself as the perfect uh, teacher, so I think uh, kids would accept my faults. Yeah, you, you were class president. At one point you were impeached as well, weren't you? <laughs> yes, I was impeached. Yeah. Um, that, that was, uh, yeah, I probably never should have been class president. Um, it was, <laughs> there was a couple girls that said to me, hey, Nick, I, I think you'd be great at this. And I was just sort of flattered that these girls said it. And I, I ran and uh, really, you know, running for it was just uh, an excuse to get on stage and tell jokes in front of the whole school and make everyone laugh. And that felt so great. But then when it got down to the actual job of being president, I was not good at it. Um, did you get to the P&E this year? Yeah, I, I went uh, on one of the last days. actually had a really good time. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm not like, I, I love the story, you know, that I told of the P&E, but, you know, as I've said in under, other interviews and things, like, it's not for me anymore. My daughters are grown. They're 23 and 25. Um, so sometimes when I go there, I feel like, you know, there's nothing really there for me. But this year my wife and I went, and we just went to, like all the shows and everything that was there. Yeah. And I just sort of went with an open mind of just, I wasn't rushing to get to anything. I just sort of went wherever it led me. And we actually ended up having a, a great time. We went to the uh, dueling pianos twice in the same night, and that was super fun. So, yeah, there's still fun to be had for everyone there, I guess. I mean, to me, it's still for kids, but, but it was fun. Yeah, I worked there one summer uh, after high school. And so I was there every day for the fair, almost yeah. every day, I think, for, for the two weeks. And so I um, uh, uh, hadn't gone, uh, it was about t- almost 20 years until I went back, and I went back in, in 2019, just before uh, the pandemic. And uh, I thought I'd go there and, you know, have lunch, walk around, maybe buy something, and then leave. I, I went there at noon, and then I didn't get out till 10 p.m., and um, I enjoyed it. I haven't been back since, but um, I've, you know, I've, uh, it's funny how these things we, 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 a lot of people like in this town turn their their nose up at the P and E, but um, it's a hell of a lot of fun, isn't it? Once you're there. Yeah, I mean, I was one of those people too that you know, once I sort of got into my twenties, I, 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 I didn't really care about the P and E for a long time. Sure. Then when I had kids, you know, then all of a sudden it was fun again, but. Um, you know, in, in writing this book, I, I realized that it's, it's for kids, it's for teenagers. It's still fun for us, but um, I used to not really care that much whether the peony was there or not. But, but now, you know, taking my class there, I go over here with my class to Playland. Uh-huh. I, I used to take my kids all the time. I would hate to take that away from Vancouver kids. I'm, I'm glad that it's there. Yeah. You um, uh, talk about a number of people in the book. You've alluded to, to family members that say work there. Uh, with you as as kids say, um, 
you um, also talk about early in the book about the sort of person that works at a carnival, um, the sort of people that travel, say, on the circus circuit. Um, you know, so some of these people early on when you were a kid, they they might have been old enough to say work during during the the freak show days, the so-called freak show days. Um, did you encounter people like that? I mean, these are people that would travel, say, you know, throughout the province, even Western Canada, uh, at every sort of show like this or fair, right? Yeah. So when I worked there, there was um, there was a guy that worked right next to us. Uh, he's in the in the first chapter, Pat, uh-huh. and he was just a young guy. He was like a maybe an older teen, but he had traveled all across Canada, working at different fairs, and and the Peonies is the last one of the summer. Um, and he was definitely a, a really different character. I remember he used to say, uh, like, if it ever started raining, he would shut his game down and run to the roller coaster because he said that the cars would, would, would fly off the track a little bit more and they'd slide <laughs> around more. And, you know, and, and I write about him, like, shooting these, like, needles at, at the, the guy that was carrying balloons around. So he, had, he was one of those guys that I've always sort of looked up to when I was a kid that, didn't follow the rules. I was kind of a rule follower, but I, I loved guys that broke the rules. And, and those kind of carny guys, they don't live by the rules. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I must say, I mean, even when, when people in the book, yourself at times, would break the rules, um, it, there wasn't really very much harm done to, to, to um, most people, I mean, you and your fellow co-workers, there was a system, wasn't there? If, if you worked at one game and your friend from another game came by, you, you, you guys had help each other out, wouldn't you? Yeah, so there was, you know, people were trading. There was the underground economy there where, like, you know, if you work at the hamburger stand, then I'll give you some prizes from my game and you give me some, some free free food and that that went like that was sort of low level everyone was doing that i was i was out with some neighbors last night and they were talking about how even if they just went down to the fair and friends they knew were working there they would they would you know sometimes it'd be the you know hey i'm gonna pay twenty dollars for this game and then they get 48 dollars back when they're playing it or sometimes it was just like oh go on the ride for free or they said one guy said you know he'd get free bags of donuts so that was we were laughing how no other job is like that. Like you don't get a job working at Metro Town or at the Bay or something and just start handing things out to other people. But at the P and E, it just felt like that was was the norm. You, you track the evolution of the fair in, in the book, and I, I found it fascinating to read about, say, rides that are gone now, um, the, the so-called freak show back in the day, the demolition derby. Um, yeah. A lot of these things are gone now, like Miss P and E and even the P and E parade. I, I, I'm old enough to remember seeing that on Hastings Street as yeah. a kid. Um, the the Peony has evolved a, a great deal over the years and, and, and sort of um, done so out of necessity to, to say keep people attracted, I guess, right? Yeah, and, and, and as much as it's changed, it, it still feels the same. Like, there's different things there now. The, the, the demolition derby isn't a thing now, but my daughter's overall, you know, when that... Now, what they'll remember is the Superdog show was the mm, thing that they liked. Right. I mean, give me the Demolition Derby any day to see <laughs> guys just, like, driving their cars as fast as they could into each other. And uh, that was amazing to me. Anyone I talked to that's sort of around my age, that was always their favorite thing, the Demolition Derby. But I think, um, yeah, like, as much as it's changed, it still feels the same. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And I, I guess the food is, that's a thing that, that uh, 
is constant throughout. I mean, I know they change the menu from time to time, but a lot of the the the, uh, the, the longtime favorites. I mean, you, you probably have some of your own, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, Jimmy's Lunch has been there. I don't know. I don't know if it's been there the whole fair. It feels yeah. like it. But uh, this year, um, my wife and I are vegetarians, so we ended up going to uh, Curry in a Hurry. And uh, as I was standing in line there, I remember I went there with my aunt, like in the 80s. She loved curry in a hurry. Um, and then, I mean, I kind of get tired of always hearing about the, uh, the the mini donuts whenever there's any kind of <laughs> yeah. news, news story. It's, you know, there's always some reporter, like, talking about the mini donuts as if it's the only thing there. But you got to kind of admit that that's, that's sort of the most memorable food at the fair because you don't have it anywhere else either, right? And, and, and getting to see them being made and and having them hot, it's just unlike other donuts. So as much as I sort of wanted to avoid mini donut talk when I started writing this book, I had to put a little bit in. Yeah, then I remember as a kid seeing Hunky Bill. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's as close to seeing a celebrity if you're a kid because you'd seen him on the news and stuff like that, right? Yeah, sometimes he was on the news fighting uh, for the right to call himself Hunky Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you remind us in the book about this period in the 1990s where the future of the peony was in doubt. And, and uh, you know, I'd forgotten that the, there, there was a point there where um, they thought the fair would be gone from that part of the of the city, right? Yeah, it was decided. City of Vancouver City Council decided that the fair was done. It was all going to be uh, rides taken down, buildings knocked down. It was all going to be turned to, returned to green space. And a lot of that was can be attributed to a guy named, um, I think, Guy Fink. And he was a uh, an East Vancouver guy who really wanted that to become green space because when the, that piece of land was originally given to the province, uh-huh. um, it was under the, um, under the assumption that it would always be for public use. And then he found this judgment that, you know, once something is being used for profit, or, you know, there's an admission fee that it's not for public use necessarily anyway anymore. So he changed that, uh, or, like, he helped get that changed, but uh, that just got reversed. I guess a different council came in and reversed it. And uh, I remember at the time not really caring that much which way it went. Yeah. But like I say now, I'm really glad that it, 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 it is there still. And there's enough green space for people in that area to, to go there, and there's, like, a, a pond that they stock with trout and that kind of thing. So I think it's a good compromise. Yeah, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking about how um, this part of the city, unless you live there or go through it regularly, um, it's not a part of the city that a lot of people go to, because you, you chart this in the book with, with the departure of the Lions and the Whitecaps and then the Canucks later in the 1990s. Um, the reason for getting to, to the Hastings Park area is uh, it, it isn't there anymore for, for most people. Do you think that they should do more? Uh, to bring people there throughout the year rather than these two weeks in August, say? It would be great, but I, I'm not really sure how they could with those teams. Those teams aren't coming back. Sure. And yeah. uh, the concerts aren't coming back to the Coliseum either. So, you know, they are building that new um, that new wooden amphitheater yeah. that I think holds like 9,000 people or something. So maybe that will be something. But even that is like, uh, I think it's all open, right? It's got yeah. a roof on it, but I think it's open. So it's not they're not going to have concerts there in the winter or anything. I mean, it would be nice if, if they found ways to bring more people there, but I, I think the way it is is the way it's going to be for a while. Yeah. I was just thinking because, you know, as much as we, we um, um, encourage public transit, uh, a lot of people go to the Pioneer, go to that part of the city, or have a, need to go to that part of the city, need to drive there, 
and there is pretty much enough parking there. Um, that 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 is, if you uh, lower the price, I guess. Yeah, and there's all those parking ladies out there. Uh, exactly. Waving yeah. waving their cardboard signs. I've always thought that would be a great um, uh, series of photographs if, if a good photographer went out and just took pictures of all those parking ladies. I think that would be a great real sort of Vancouver photography exhibition. Yeah. Well, by the way, when you you and your wife went there this year, did, where did you park? <laughs> Oh, we parked by Notre Dame by the high school because you can park there for free, and then we just walk. It's about six or eight blocks. So that's a great thing. Yeah. Whenever I talk to people about the peony, I always ask them how they park there. I don't drive myself, but um, um, I'm always fascinated to, to to know because everybody has their own strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say in the book, when you work there, you would uh, sometimes have to park in someone's yard. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, it, it's just it's just one of those Vancouver things, isn't it? About uh, not just going to the fair, but where you park when you get there. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a movie. I can't think of the name of it. There, there was a movie that was sort of based on on those the, the parking ladies. Yeah, um, Meditation Park. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a great film. Yeah. Um, why is the roller coaster special? And I'm asking somebody who um, I, I happen to like the roller coaster, but as I read in the book, you're not a big fan of rides like that, right? No, I mean, I was uh, I was a bit of a coward for rides when I was a little kid. Uh, I, I didn't love the, the 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 feeling of being thrust into danger. Always scared me. Um, but then when I became a teen, you know, there's some peer pressure to do it, do those things, and I didn't want to be the guy just on the side, so I would go on them. And I do actually enjoy those kind of rides now. You know, having gone to Disneyland with our kids and that, I went on the bigger roller coasters uh-huh. and that. But um, I think with this roller coaster, what what means so much to people is, I think the fact that it's a wooden roller coaster is a huge part of it. If that was a metal roller coaster that had been there for 65 years, that's one thing. Yeah. But but just the fact that it's wooden, it just makes it, it almost gives it like a haunted house kind of feel to me. Like there's something scary about it, and it just moves a little bit more, and it looks, it looks like it can't really stand up that long. I mean, the thing is, 65 years old. I wonder how many of those boards have been replaced. I, I haven't looked into that. But I think just the fact that it's wooden, that it's just so huge and it's been there so long that it, it's really, I think if it was gone, it wouldn't feel like the P&E anymore, even though I don't really go on it. I would be disappointed to see it gone. Exactly. I'd be the same as well, yeah. Um, the, the book also talks about the, the, the role of the peony. Hastings Park, especially during the uh, the, the Second World War and in the, in, in the Japanese internment, um, that's something that has reverberated in the community through the generations. And, and you, you write about um, even just commemorating it in the in the eighties and nineties, how hard that was. Yeah, I think the the, the, the federal government had um, okayed a plaque. Or, or paid for a plaque or something to be. Uh-huh. It was a very. It, it wasn't. It didn't even really say very much. It just was like, hey, to remember these people, and the peony and the. I think it was in the late '80s. Uh, said no, we're not putting that up. Now things have changed over time, and now there's going to be a Japanese interpretive center there. That'll be a lot more. There'll, there'll be a lot more um, awareness yeah. for people that are going there. But but even like this year, I went into the the barns. You know the areas where the uh, some of the Japanese. Uh, Canadians were kept, and I couldn't, I didn't look that long, but I didn't find anything that, that said, you know, that this is a place of historical significance where women and children were forced to live in horse barns in 1942. I think that kind of thing should, you know, should 
should be clear from the second you walk in. I don't think we should hide from it. I think it should be something that the P&E acknowledges. And I want to make clear the P&E didn't really have anything to do with the internment. That land was taken by the, the Canadian government at right. the time. Yeah. But, <clears throat> the, you know, as I talk about in the book, the, the precursor to Playland was called Happy Land, the amusement park, and that stayed open while the Japanese Canadians were incarcerated behind uh, chain link fences and they could watch, you know, people going to dances at the Happy Land Dance Hall or hear people on the, on the ride. So to me, that was very surprising. And uh, um, I want to say shocking, but my yeah. daughter tells me, you know, you shouldn't be shocked by this. You should know that this kind of stuff went on. But I, I, I was quite surprised about that fact. Yeah, that's uh, the, the great thing about your book is that, that you uh, go through the history of, of this place. Um, and um, you tell us about the things that we need to know, even though a lot of people in, in, in even today are uncomfortable talking about these things. Um this is stuff that we need to know and that we need to, uh, say, repeat um, and uh, talk about, I should say, right? Yeah, for sure. This is, uh, when you think about it, you know, it, it's among the worst things that has ever happened in British Columbia. And I had so many people that have read the book that are, you know, my age, 50 and over, that, that say to me, I, I didn't know any of this stuff. I knew that there was some kind of Japanese and German, but I didn't know any of the stuff that happened there. So, you know, clearly the school system has not done a good enough job in, in teaching about that. Now, that being said, it is part of the curriculum now. Uh -huh. So kids do learn about that, but I never really learned about it. And, and I, when we, if we did learn about it, it was almost like it was justified, like, hey, it was wartime, we had to be careful, like all that kind of thing. They didn't, you know, didn't tell us that 75% of the people that were incarcerated were, were born in Canada or Canadian citizens. So, um yeah, it's definitely a huge, important part of the story of the peony. There's some some fascinating characters in the book, that, in, in in ones that you talk about. Um, you, you mentioned your mother, um, an awfully uh, moving part of the book. Your your grandmother's another wonderfully colorful character. Mm -hmm. There's a guy in the book, Isaac Messenger. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talked to him. He's quite old when you talk to him, right? Yeah, actually, I just saw him a few weeks ago. I dropped off a book for him. He's, uh, he's a, I think he's 94, I wow. think, right now. Um, but, yeah, he was quite a character where, um, can I can I tell the story of Isaac? Oh, please, yeah. I, I was yeah. going to ask him because he's one of those characters that um, when you get to the Peony, whatever age you are, you see people like that. And uh, they, they've obviously lived a long time or gone to the Peony a long time, and and they have fascinating stories. If you just ask, and in the case of Isaac, you asked him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's talking about carnies. He's one of the, he's a classic carny. Like he didn't just work there. He that was his job. He would go, you know, around the United States and work in the American South, not at all different kind of kinds of fairs. But this is the, the way I got Isaac's story is the way I got so many of the stories in this book. Like I. I did a lot of research, but so much of it came to me. Once people heard us writing this book, like mm. through friends or family, people would bring stories to me. I mean, I had one time I was just walking down the street, and a guy pulled over, and it was my brother's friend. He's like, Nikki, I heard you writing a story about uh, a book about the P&E. I got some stories for you. And he gave me a bunch of stuff about about um, uh, Empire Stadium and that whole Mali chip seats and the craziness of the BC Lions games and that kind of stuff. And, and so this story about Isaac, 
my daughter came home from work one day. She was working at Arts Umbrella, and she said, hey, someone at work told me that you need to talk to her uh, landlord. So I went over to this guy's house, and I, I knew the woman that, that was living there as well. Mm-hmm. And so I met Isaac, and he looked just like a little old harmless guy, and he starts telling me his story, and it was amazing. So, so Isaac was born, I think, in 1930 or 29, something like that, in um, Poland, uh-huh. and eventually lost his whole family um, during the Second World War. So he was an orphan just living on the street. And uh, he had to supplement his income by, he was in a uh, pickpocket ring, him and a buddy were, he was the muscle, which, I mean, if you saw this guy, he looked like a tiny little guy, like how could he ever be the muscle? <laughs> yeah. But but he was, and he would, he could, you know, he was a shaky guy to stand up, but he would stand up and he'd start like throwing some punches, showing me like what he would do. And, you know, I think his uppercut, because he's a smaller guy, was his move. But, um, so he was, you know, he was a street kid basically in Poland, then eventually moved to Winnipeg where he, you know, made friends with, with a lot of, you know, being a tough guy himself, made friends with those kind of guys on the street and, yeah. and got friendly with some mafia guys. And then someone came to him and said, um, hey, look, I, I know you know mafia guys, and I'm in a lot of trouble, and I want you to help me out. I, I borrowed some money, and I, I can't pay it back, and I'm afraid they're going to kill me. So Isaac was able to, to go to the mafia, work out some kind of payment plan. This guy got to live, and they got their money. And the guy was very thankful, you know, obviously that, that Isaac had done this. So when he, that guy moved to Vancouver and started working at the P&E and had a position that was high enough that he could hire people, uh, when he heard that Isaac had moved to Vancouver, he told Isaac, you know, come to me, I'll give you a job. So he got him a job working at a, um, a gambling tent. Yeah. You know, he'd spin in the crown and anchor wheel. And he said to Isaac, you know, you've done so much for me. I want to thank you. So... My way of thanking you is this year, during the fair, don't hand in the money at the end of the day. Whatever money you take in, you take that. You keep that money. That's my thank you to you. So for two weeks, Isaac brought home money. And, and I think at the time, the average American, average Canadian um, man was making around $3,500 a year. And Isaac was sometimes taking home $500 a night. Wow. So he ended up buying a house. Um, and that's the house he still lives in. That's the house I went and interviewed him in. And uh, and just as a fun aside, he bought the house from another mafia guy. <laughs> so, like, as someone who's grown up in Vancouver and all my family is Italian, I don't, I've never met a mafia guy or, you know, I've heard mumblings of this, but, you know, sure. not in my family. Yeah. But this guy, he just, you know, and then he was friends with the... Uh, the owners of the penthouses, of the, the Filipponis, I right. think. Yeah. And he said they were like family. And then he became friends with um, Rocky Marciano through them and traveled around the world with Rocky Marciano or around North America. And he was just this, like, wonderful, friendly guy. And he would even be, like, in tears sometimes telling me some of the stories, like, like, like emotionally sad because he was moved. Uh, a story I didn't put in the book, but he was uh, down in the south and there was this uh, African-American boy who was looking into the fair when they're setting up. And, and Isaac said, uh, you know, tried to give the kid a teddy bear, and the kid was trying to run away, and the kid said, my, my parents told me to stay away from white people, they'll kill me. And then Isaac, you know, went over his way to be nice to this kid and, and brought him a, a, a teddy bear. And as he was telling the story, he started crying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he starts crying at one story that you repeat in the book about, about seeing a, a, a mother and her um, handicapped daughter. Yeah. Um, it's people like that who, who, who bring a lot of the heart um, to, to the P&E every year. 
Yeah, yeah, and he he's the guy, kind of guy that then he moved up and he worked there for many years, and he was sort of just walking around and in in his words uh, solving problems. You know, if there's yeah. any trouble, he'd be the guy to straighten things out because, he, as he said, God gave me enough brains to solve problems. Now, you, you mentioned uh, the mob a moment ago, Nick. Was your great grandfather was he in the mob? Uh, I don't think so. Now. Um, <laughs> So the, I, I, the reason you bring him up, he's in the book, and there's a chapter, and uh, w- he was murdered in 1914, and the, in, in the newspaper it said, richest Italian in Vancouver is uh-huh. shot. Yeah. Um, so I always just, you know, knew that my great-grandfather was a, a rich guy that was a, supposedly a part owner of the Sylvia Hotel. Um, and then, you know, like you asked me that question one day, as I was researching the book, I was like, how did he get all this money? Because he started out as a miner, mm-hmm. and then before you know it, like he was uh, quite a rich guy, the richest Italian in the city. Um, but I haven't looked into it enough. I know that he was basically like a money lender, and he owned some rooming houses. So um, I know. I, I guess my hope is he just made his, his money somewhat honestly. I'm not sure, but it is something I'm going to look into. And, and unfortunately, after his, his murder in 1914, he was he was shot to death. Um, the uh, the wealth sort of uh, disappeared after um, a while, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. They, you know, the family lore is that uh, um, because his wife couldn't speak English and didn't know anything about business, she was sort of swindled out of his properties and his shares and things, and uh, and the family. And not that they were, you know, were like dirt poor, but they they certainly weren't, you know, like they were sort of, I guess, like the Aquilinis of the time, uh-huh. um, if you want to compare them to something from today, and then. You know, from from there, it just sort of came, I guess, regular family. Although, um, you know, Benny's Market in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my grandma's sister started that place, and um, so there's a few things throughout the city. There's a restaurant, Puccini's, that was sort of big, that was uh-huh. run by family members, and and my uh, second cousin ran Richards on Richards, and you know, so there's there's a little bit of that sort of entrepreneurial spirit that my great grandfather had still running through the city a little bit. There's, there's a part in the book where you talk about your dad, uh, Mike, who, yeah. um, um, and, and I thought it was just great uh, when you talk about his growing up, not just including the story about him taking a bicycle across the border uh, to buy tobacco, but um, you uh, talk about um, a number of jobs that he had early on. Um, oh, yeah. before his, his career. And um, I found it fascinating when you say in the book that these are jobs that don't exist in Vancouver anymore. Yeah, well, he like he had a job um, salting the, the, the street car tracks in the middle of the night. I, you know, just, if He would have been less than 14 or 15 doing this because he left home on a ship at 15. Wow. Um, he had a job as a shoeshine boy. He worked as a whistle punk. Which was uh, in, at a logging site. He would he lied his way into that job. He had no idea how to do it, but he said he did, and they just <laughs> dropped him off in, in in the woods basically. And he had to learn how to you know send signals to make sure that the logging uh, was safe. Um, yeah, so he had. Uh, I, I found it fascinating. I love I love him telling me those stories. I'm I'm so grateful he's still around. You know, at 88 to to tell me these stories of, of what Vancouver was like at the time. Yeah. The, the reaction to the book's been pretty good. It's it, it, it sold quite well. It's a bestseller. Um, I, I'm sure you have people coming up to you all the time telling you stories uh, about their experiences with the P&E. Yeah, I mean, since it came out, um, 
I, I'm constantly getting told new stories. Like last night, like I said, I was out with some neighbors last night, and uh, this one woman said that she was working there. This was probably, she doesn't seem that old, so I bet it was within the last 20 years mm. probably. And she was uh, in HR, and she was hiring all the sort of temporary teams for the summer. And she said the biggest, she said she had two problems. One is that they would never want to give their real name when they got their name tags. It was always like Thunder or, or something like that. <laughs> but she said the, the biggest complaint they always got was that the, the workers stunk so bad because they never washed their uh, uniform. Mm. So she said they had to start a laundry service just so that these uh, kids would get their uniforms washed and the, and the um, customers wouldn't smell or wouldn't, wouldn't complain about them smelling so bad. Yeah, especially if you're a kid and you have to wear wear those colorful T-shirts. Yeah, um, sure. you you, um, you know you'd, you'd have one or two at at the most, and and so you know what are you going to do if you're working every day, right? Yeah, yeah, and and teens don't seem to be able to smell themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Another story I heard. Um, so yeah. I have a chapter in here about the, the Crump twins. Oh yeah, um, some uh, some some uh, black brothers that that grew up in Vancouver. They worked at Longshoremen with my dad, and they were they're in the BC. Um, Performing Hall of Fame. Right. Um, they they were a musical duo that performed the peony. They they performed like first they started out as like sort of like funny boxers in between boxing matches uh-huh. when they were about eight or nine years old, um, and then they were like tap dancers and they eventually became a duo and they were singers and that kind of thing. But um, when I interviewed Ronnie Crump, who's still alive, um, his brother Robert died a few years ago, but Robert's daughter got in in touch with me on Facebook. And just to sort of thank me, she really liked the book and liked the chapter about her, her dad. And then she said that she remembers the Peony so well, having grown up on the east side there. And she said she remembers the time when she was there, and there was a blackout, and everything just went dark. Isn't that night? And then she said when the lights came back on, most of the prizes were stolen from the games. <laughs> I loved. <laughs> I worked. Yeah. Uh, I worked for Great Canadian that that summer. I guess it was two thousand and two. And, um, uh, you know, it's one of those games where you, you put your money down and then they spin the wheel and then you win, you know, whatever square it lands on, et cetera, or color. Yeah. And uh, there was a moment there where um, uh, the people working didn't know what they were doing, I guess, or, or weren't paying attention. And so you'd see people moving the money to the wherever the, yeah. the square landed. And, and, you know, you had no choice but to pay it out, right? Yeah. But uh, you know, it must be great just to get all these stories and and uh, uh, have them. Um, are you working on on another writing project now, Nick? Yeah, actually, I just signed a contract with Arsenal to write another book, so I'm going to be um, sort of taking off from that chapter on my great grandpa, uh-huh. and I'm going to sort of try and follow um, sort of what happened. He moved from uh, Abruzzo, Italy, in eighteen eighteen ninety when Vancouver was four years old. Um, and I just sort of want to follow sort of a history of the city, um, but also a history of the family. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not interested in this person, married this person. I just want to look for more stories. And I, it's, I, I see it as sort of the same tone as this book, but the boundaries, instead of being just a peony, the boundaries will be Vancouver City. Yeah, so. as you mentioned a moment ago, all these places, that, that even, even Benny's Market, um, yeah. You know, they have the, uh, the, the, the trace back to, say, members of your family. That would be fascinating. Um, Nick, yeah. this is a, such a compelling read. Congratulations on this book and continued good luck with it. Give my best to your, your dad, Mike, would you? 
Oh, well, thanks a lot for the interview. I really enjoyed it. The book is called East Side Story, Growing Up at the Peony. It's published by Robin's Egg, which is an imprint of Arsenal Pulp Press. Its author, Nick Marino, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planto. <laughs>